Good morning. It is good to see all of you here. Thank you for coming and joining us for worship here at Ivy Creek this, this morning. Those of you who are here in the house, those of you who are worshiping with us from your house or wherever you may be, we are grateful that you have joined us online today and those of you who have joined us here in person. If you have your Bibles with you, and I hope that you do, please take them out. Turn with me to the Gospel of John and to chapter 17. John chapter 17. Many of you will remember in the spring of this past year, uh, we undertook the task of studying together an extended passage of Scripture that started in John chapter 13 and worked its way all the way through John chapter 16 uh, and, and that records for us really the intimate moments that, that the Lord Jesus had with His disciples uh, there that last Passover when He was able to celebrate that with them in the upper room a time when he invested in them and he loved them and he taught them so many things. And, and we looked at the, that, that stretch of Scripture in, in a sermon series that I entitled Lessons from the Upper Room. And I would just say to you that if any of those are interesting to you or you'd like to go back and hear any of those, those are all on our website and you're welcome to go there. You can find them by clicking on the Sermons tab on that website. Now, I remind you of that sermon series, not as a shameless plug, in any way at all, but really I, I wanted to let you know why we have our Bibles open to John 17, because we, we finished looking through John 16. And so as I began to think about the fact that the celebration that we as a family of believers and as the, the church worldwide will begin to celebrate here in just five weeks from today, which is the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, is I began to consider the fact that the Easter is coming. Well, then I wanted, I began to pray, Lord, how would you have us as a church family begin to gear our hearts so that we can truly be able to celebrate that resurrection, that our hearts could be in tune with what you have done for us, that we may be able to worship you fully. And, and so the Lord really clearly brought me back to the fact, well, you finished up in John 16. Why don't you begin in John 17? and begin working toward the cross and working toward the resurrection. And so, brothers and sisters, that's exactly what we're going to do. We're going to begin a new series today, which I will just go ahead and tell you is not really new. It's just a continuation of our exposition of the Gospel of John. And we are going to do uh, that this morning and, and begin that series in a, what I have entitled Looking to the Cross and the Empty Tomb. And that's really where I want our focus and our attention to be as we launch into that this morning. Now, as, as we do launch into that this, today, we do so by looking at a chapter of Scripture in which we find Jesus is still with His disciples. That's, that's where He had been since John 13. He'd been there in the upper room. He's still with them here. But what we find in John 17 is that Jesus is praying to His heavenly Father. This chapter, John chapter 17, has been described as the Holy of Holies. Because in it, we are exposed to, as one writer has put it, the most extensive example in all the Bible of a direct, verbalized communication between two members of the Godhead. John chapter 17 is most commonly referred to as Jesus' high priestly prayer. And in it, we find the incarnate Son of God on the eve of His crucifixion lifting his eyes to heaven and pouring out his heart to his heavenly father. Perhaps you've been in a room before, maybe a Sunday school class or a meeting of some sort, and all the little conversations that are going on all around the room, and suddenly there's a hush that kind of comes on the room because someone is beginning the meeting officially 
with a word of prayer. And everybody silences themselves and gets themselves still because there's a conversation that is beginning to take place between that individual and the Heavenly Father. Well, the same really should occur with our hearts this morning, particularly as we go through this passage of Scripture, because we have the privilege of listening to an intimate yet very public prayer that Jesus prays. To put it in Old Testament terminology, this is a passage of Scripture where we ought to take off our shoes because the the ground upon which we tread is holy. I'm going to confess to you right up front that I will in no way, shape, or form do this passage justice today. Um, Thomas Manton, who you may not have ever heard of, was an English clergyman who served as a chaplain for Oliver Cromwell in the 1600s in, in Great Britain. He preached 45 sermons from John chapter 17 alone. Many books have been written just on this one chapter, and here I am this morning attempting to preach on it in a text for just a little over a half hour. And I will confess to you I have felt very unworthy of such a challenge this morning. What I should tell you is, as John Stott has put it, we will only be able to paddle in the shadows of what is shallows of what is an infinitely deep text. Nevertheless, my goal for us as we launch into this series of sermons today is simply for us to consider this prayer in light of the cross, which stands imposingly in Jesus' immediate future. Our Lord's sacrifice was only hours away, and this prayer that he, He prays reveals what the cross meant for Him, and it also reveals what the cross means for us. And so with that in mind, let's let's take off our proverbial shoes. Let's concentrate our hearts on this prayer that Jesus the Son offers to God, his heavenly Father. Verse 1, hear the word of God. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son also may glorify you as you have given him authority over all flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of this world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now, they have known all things which you have given me and are from, are from you. For I have given them to them the words which you have given me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now, I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are, 
While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept. And none of them is lost except the son of perdition that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I come to you. And these things I speak in the world that they may have joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of this world. Just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified by the truth. I do not pray for these alone but also for all those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us and that the world may believe that you sent me and that the glory that you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfect in one and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you. And these have known that you sent me and I have declared to them your name and will declare it that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. Brothers and sisters, this, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Lord Jesus, we thank you for these words that the Apostle John recorded that you prayed To our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truths that are there. I ask, Lord Jesus, that you might help me today through your Holy Spirit to be able to communicate really in a very pitiful and small way the truths that are here and that you would would just put a burning in our hearts to even go back and study it more deeply and continue to immerse ourselves in it. I thank you for the truths that we are about to consider this morning and for the impact that those truths have made upon our lives collectively and and that you desire for them to continue to make into our lives. So I ask for you to be honored and for you to be glorified just as you are glorified. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, hopefully as I read this passage, and I don't know how well I read it for you, but I'm hoping that as I did, you notice that this, this text really breaks into three distinct Parts. There's three parts to this prayer that Jesus prays. In verses 1 through 5, we notice that Jesus prays for himself. Then in verses 9 through uh, 6, 6 through 19, he's praying for his disciples primarily. And then from verses 20 down through verse 26, we see that Jesus is praying for his church. He's praying for those future believers who would come to know Christ as a result of the ministry of his disciples, his apostles, whom he would send out. And so the natural division of that, that this text is really going to supply us with, with the outline that we're going to use today. But as we work our way through those individual sections, I want you to notice that each section has its own set, set of emphases, really. 
And, and, and I want us to notice those as we work our way through the passage this morning. So notice the first section. The first section is that is there in verses 1 through 5, and that's that Jesus prays for himself. And I would propose to you that the, the two emphases that we're going to come across there is the cross and his glory. Jesus' cross and his glory are the two emphases that we will, we will see. As I mentioned, as Jesus prays, he knows what lies in front of him. The cross and the time for his sacrificial death, they loomed in his immediate future. And while, and while the cross and his death are nowhere mentioned explicitly in verses 1 through 5, we know that they were at the heart of his prayer. And we know that because of the way that Jesus begins it. He says, Father, the hour has come. Now when Jesus says that, we ought immediately remember the number of times in John's gospel alone that Jesus has said, my hour has not yet come. The first time occurs in John chapter 2 when Jesus and his mother are at this wedding in Cana and she comes to him because the, the wedding party had run out of wine and she wants Jesus to do something about it. And Jesus looks at her and says, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. In John chapter 6, his brothers who, who were not believing Jesus' story at this point, that he was who he claimed to be, they wanted to push him out and say, why don't you go to Jerusalem, go into Judea and proclaim to all the people there who you are. And Jesus says, the hour, my time has not yet come. Later in John chapter 6 and also in John chapter 8, we see that Jesus had come into conflict with some of the religious leaders of his day and they were trying to put their hands on him and seize him. But the Bible says, interestingly enough, that they could not do so. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. But here in John chapter 17, with the cross directly in front of him, Jesus prays, Father, the hour has come. What that tells us is that the cross was the purpose for which Jesus came. Listen, it may be true and absolutely is so that Jesus came to live a very good life and a perfect life and serves as an example for us. It is absolutely true that Jesus came and taught wonderful things. But Jesus came to be more than a good example and he came to be more than a good teacher. Jesus came to be our Savior. And he accomplished that by dying for sinners like you and like me on the cross. He willingly gave his life in exchange for ours. Now, I want you to notice that Jesus defines salvation for us in terms of eternal life in verse 2. That was the purpose for which he had come to this hour. He had come to lay down his life in order to give eternal life to those whom the Father had given to him. Then in verse 3, Jesus expands upon his definition of eternal life. He says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one and only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. What that means is that eternal life is more than just existing forever. Most of the time when we think of eternal life, we say, well, I'm just going to live forever. And we define it in terms of duration of life. But notice that Jesus expands upon that significantly. In fact, I would even say this. According to Scripture, every human being will exist forever. Even those who do not place their faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, according to Revelation 20 verse 10, we read that those who reject the Son will face eternal judgment. The Bible says they will be tormented day and night forever 
and ever. There's an eternality to the life that all of us will live. Therefore, rather than duration, when we think about eternal life, we need to think about it through the lens with which Jesus presents it for us. And Jesus defines eternal life by the abundance of joy that necessarily comes when a sinner is saved and when he enters into an unending relationship with the Father by what Christ has done for him, his Son. As Jesus declares in John chapter 10, verse 10, he says, I have come. Why? That you may have life and that it may be more abundant. He has come to give us abundant life. What the scriptures reveal to us is that the abundant and eternal life that Jesus has come to bring only comes via his death on the cross in our place. According to what Jesus prays in verse 2, those whom the Father has given him, given to him, will receive the gift of eternal life, not because, listen, not because their hour had come. You and I will never be saved because our hour has come. It's not come to be our time to do all the good things that we need to do so that we can earn our way into heaven's glory. It's not that our hour has come so that we can do whatever is necessary. That's, that's not at all what Jesus says. He says, it's my hour has come. It was his time to give his life in exchange for mine and for yours. The, the absolute tremendous significance of the cross and of Christ's death is clearly declared in these verses. He came to give eternal life to those whom the Father had given to him to make it possible for sinners like you and me to enter into a relationship with the Lord forever. And the only means by which that eternal life is possible is through Jesus' death on the cross. Now notice, notice that that theme of the cross is also accompanied by the theme of glory. Because Jesus asked the Father to glorify Him so that, so that He in turn might glorify the Father. How does He do that? Well, listen, on the cross, on the cross we see the, the glory of God's justice and the glory of His holiness on full display. You see, God is a holy God, which means He is completely separated from sin. He, he cannot entertain it. He will not wink at it. He is a holy God, completely separate and completely undefiled by sin. And therefore, He cannot and He will not allow sin to go unpunished. If he were to do so, then he would not be a holy and a just God. So on the cross, the glory of the Father's holiness and his righteousness is on full display because we see sin dealt with. We see it punished on the cross. But what we also come to face with on the cross is the glorious grace and the mercy with which God the Father deals with sinners like you and me. You see, we're the ones that deserve God's punishment. We're the ones who deserve to be put to death because of our sin. But on the cross, what we observe is that Jesus Christ, who Himself was completely undefiled, completely holy, without sin, He steps up, takes our place on the cross, and God in His righteous wrath punishes Jesus in my and your place. And in that, we see the glory of God and His grace and His mercy extended toward undeserving sinners like you and me. 
Jesus paid the debt that we owe so that we might be freed from the penalty of sin and from the grip of death. Now that's something to get excited about. So if you're here and you're excited about it, you can say amen to that one. On the cross, Christ's glory is on full display and it points to the glory of the Father. Then in verse 5, we hear Jesus pray, pray this, but now, Father, oh, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. You see, here Jesus alludes to his pre-incarnate glory. Jesus was glorious and has been glorious for all eternity. He possesses a glory that, that was never in, 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 in any doubt whatsoever. Nevertheless, Jesus laid aside his glory to come to earth in order to be the sin bearer and the savior for folks like us. But once he had completed his mission for which he came, once his sacrificial death on the cross was completed and his work of salvation accomplished, Christ longed to return to the glory which was rightfully his. That laying aside of his glory, dying in the place of sinners, and returning to his full glory is really what the Apostle Paul wrote, writes about in what you know to be one of my absolute all-time, without doubt, favorite passages of Scripture in Philippians 2. I commend it to you. Philippians 2, Jesus, who was being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death of the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every name, every knee should bow, and every t- of those, un- uh, those in heaven, those on earth, and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you see how that works? He has the pre-incarnate glory. He lays it aside. He comes to this earth. He bears our sin on the cross and saves us, glorifying the Father. And then the Father brings him back and returns to him the glory which had always been his. So there you have it. That amounts to what is only a pitiful attempt to plow through the first five verses of this prayer in which Jesus prays. But we must continue because I believe that these themes of the cross and his glory are actually standing in the background of the rest of the prayer. And so notice with me the second part that I want us to think about this morning. The second part of this prayer is where Jesus prays for his disciples and I believe there are three main emphases that we come across there. We come across the protection, the sanctification, and the mission of those disciples. The protection, the sanctification and the mission of those disciples. Let's consider the protection first. We might even also say it's their security. Listen to what Jesus prays again, beginning in verse 11. He says, Now I'm no longer in the world, but these are in the world. Talking about his disciples. And he's praying to the Father. He says, I come to you, Holy Father. He says, Holy Father, keep through or in your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are one. And then he goes on to expound upon that. He says, while I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you've gave me, I have kept. And none of them is lost except the son of perdition that the scriptures might be fulfilled. And this, of course, is a reference to, to Judas Iscariot, whom Jesus had already identified back in John chapter 6, verse 70, as a devil. And so he was not a true believer. Jesus makes that clear. He's the son of perdition. He's the son of destruction. But all the others, Jesus says, he has kept. They were secure. 
They were protected. But then listen to what Jesus goes on to pray in verse 15. He says, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. That that repetition of the, the concept of keeping them. Father, keep them. I've kept them. I've kept them all. Now you keep them. Keep them from the world. Keep them from the devil. Here's the gist of what Jesus prays for. He prays that his disciples will be kept safe that they would be kept secure even as they went on to minister and serve in the name in his name in a, in what would be a very hostile environment for them in verse 14 Jesus identifies the hostility that they faced he says i have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world so jesus prays for the protection of his disciples, from the hostility of the world and also from the the powers of the evil one who would seek to attack them. Now, did that mean that they would not be persecuted? No, they were persecuted. But because they shared in the abundant and eternal life that he had come to give them, that he would secure for them on the cross, then their salvation was completely secure. And Jesus prays that they would be overcomers, that they would be protected, and that they would be kept by the power of God. Jesus also prays, though, not just for their protection, He prays for their sanctification. What is clear from Jesus' prayer is is that He was sending them into the world as the ones who would bear witness to Him. They would be the ones who, the the primary band of, of individuals who would go out and who would proclaim the good news of his death and of his resurrection. But in addition to the attacks of the world and of the devil, notice that there's an even more insidious danger that the disciples faced as they went there. Did you notice that there? You see, not only would they have faced the attacks from outside, from the, from, from the world and, and, and from Satan himself, but Jesus is also praying for their sanctification because it was entirely possible, as he recognized, that these disciples could go out into the world and actually take on the characteristics of the world into which they were sent. They could go out and lose their distinctiveness that was theirs by virtue of the fact that they had been with Jesus. In their going out, they could become like the folks that they were going out into. Jesus clearly recognized that danger, so he prays to the Father that they would sanctify them. Father would sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Time does not permit me to camp out there on that verse. I really wish we could, but let me simply state this. It is the Lord's will for your life, for you to live a holy and set-apart life for His glory. It is God's will for your life to live a life that is holy and set-apart for His glory. A life that is distinct from the world around you. Now let me clarify and, and hear me very clearly. I do not mean that that we are to impose upon ourselves legalistic demands by which we attempt to gain and attain our own righteousness. That was the problem of the Pharisees. And Jesus addressed it very clearly and he condemned them for it. Nevertheless, Jesus' words here tell us that we are to be distinct from the world around us. We are to emulate his life and his teaching in the way that we live 
to the degree that the world into which we are sent will look upon us and say there is something different about that man. There is something different about that woman. There is something different about that child, that boy or girl that I cannot get my hands around and I want to know what it is that's different about you. Why do you behave the way you do? Why do you not do the things that you do? Who is it that you are responsible to because there's something different about you? Jesus desires for the distinction of his followers to present an example to the world around them that will cause them to be attracted to him. And at that point, when that happens, we have the opportunity to point them to Jesus Christ. We have the opportunity to say, listen, there is nothing good about me because God knows me from the inside out. But let me tell you what I can tell you. There is only one thing that I have to boast in, and it is the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ who has given himself in exchange for me so that I might have eternal life. He is my only hope, and he is going to be your only hope as well. That's the opportunity that we have when our life is distinct. But brothers and sisters, if, we, if there is no distinctiveness about us, that door of opportunity will not open. So we see Jesus' emphasis on protection. We see it on sanctification. And as we've already just touched on, Jesus' emphasis on mission. Notice what, that Jesus didn't, didn't pray that his disciples would be taken out of the hostility of this world a world that's filled with all kinds of danger and evil. Rather, as he prays in verse 18, just as he had been sent into the world to accomplish the mission for which he had been sent, now he sends his disciples into that world as well to accomplish the mission that he is sending them on. You know, I've asked this question before in in other contexts, but I'll ask it again this morning. Have you ever thought about why once you come to faith in Christ and once God has saved you from your sins and you you are in full possession of eternal life right then, why doesn't God just take us out of this world? Why didn't he just lift us right out right then out of all this filth and all this stuff that, that can trip us up and cause us pain and have all... Why why does God leave us? Is it because he doesn't love us? Does he leave us here because he doesn't care about us? Is that why he has left us here? No. No, a thousand times no. The reason he leaves us here is because he is leaving a remnant of his followers here to serve as a, as a beacon of light to a dark and lost world. He leaves us here so that we can have an impact on the world around us. We are to be salt and we are to be light, as he says in Matthew chapter 5. And so we are to be those who have been called out of the world, distinct from it, so that we can be on mission to it. Brothers and sisters, the only hope that this world has is Jesus Christ. And he has left us this word and our bodies to go out and to carry it into the lost communities and byways and highways. As they said, when I was growing up, that's where we have to go to take it. Our lives are not to be lived unto ourselves. Rather, we have been saved and we have been set apart. So that as Jesus commands in Acts 1.8, we can go into a... Judea, Samaria, and the other most parts of the earth to put it in our own geography so that we can go into Buford and to Swanee and to Flowery Branch and to Sugar Hill and we can go up into Gainesville and we can go down into Atlanta and we can go to all the rest of Georgia and we can spread across the southeast of the United States and all across the world taking the good news of Jesus Christ. My time is slipping away quickly this morning. We have only skimmed the surface. Nevertheless, notice the last section of Jesus' prayer and the last point on your outline this morning. It's this, Jesus prays for us. 
in this last part, he's praying for us. Now, I'm going to hold it together the best I'm going to be able to. He's praying for us, but here's what he's going to emphasize. He's going to emphasize unity, and he's going to emphasize presence. Unity and presence. But here, before we get to that, let me just, let me just say this. It's one of the greatest. One of the greatest treasures of Scripture is right here. You see it. Jesus Christ is praying for me right there. I can't get over it. He's praying for me. And if you have come to faith in Jesus Christ, don't you get over it either. He's praying for you. I do not pray for these alone. He's speaking of His disciples. But also for those who will believe in Me through their Word. That's future. And that's about all of us who have come to faith. Jesus Christ is praying for you and for me. That's amazing. Now, what did he pray for? I got to get to that. What did he pray for? He prayed for unity. Notice the repetition of that theme. Beginning verse 21, he says that they all may be one, that they also may be one in us. Verse 22, that they may be one just as we are one. Verse 23, that they may be perfect in one. You continue to hear that theme being repeated. Two things are very clear about what Jesus prays here. First of all, discord and disunity are never becoming of believers. Factiousness, selfishness, competition, bitterness... Those things in no way represent the life that we have in Christ. Period. Second, true unity can only be found in the person and the work of Jesus Christ and in His glory. If you and I are going to remain united together, we have only one thing that will ultimately unite us, and that is Jesus Christ his work on the cross, and the glory with which we will one day share. I like how Warren Wiersbe has put it. Christian harmony is not based on the externals of the flesh, but the internals and eternals of the spirit in the inner person. We we must look beyond the elements of our first birth, our race, our color, our abilities, etc., and build our fellowship on the essentials of our new birth that is given to us as a free gift of God the Father through the sacrifice of His Son, the Lord Jesus. That is the only way that we will ever remain unified. And Jesus prays for that unity. And then notice the last word of emphasis today. He prays for presence. Notice that Jesus prays that we will be granted the privilege of forever beholding His glory in His presence. In John 14, Jesus made this promise. He says, I'm going away, but if I go away, I will come again and receive you into myself. That Where I am, there you may be also. His promise in John 14 is the same as His prayer right here. He prays here so that, where, so that he, he, we will one day be in His presence and be able to to, to stay with him and behold his glory, the glory that has been his since time began. And that is an absolutely astounding prayer. And as I said at the outset, all we have done is skim the surface 
and paddle in the shallows. Nevertheless, let me point you to my sermon in a sentence this morning, and then, and then following it, let me give you some points of application, some things for you to ponder as we, as we move on today. My sermon in a sentence that begins that is simply this. Jesus' prayer looks forward to the cross by which he is ultimately glorified and his church is protected, sanctified, commissioned, and unified in the hope of eternal life in his presence. Now, in light of that understanding and to the degree that it accurately represents what Jesus prays here, And in light of the recognition that the cross lay immediately in front of Jesus as he prayed this prayer, then let me ask you this question this morning. Do you have the hope of eternal life that Jesus speaks about? Do you share in his life? Can you honestly say that Jesus is praying for you in verse 20 when he prays for those who will believe in him? As we saw, the the definition of eternal life is given to us back in verse 3. And Jesus says that eternal life is the knowledge of God. So the question is, do you know God personally? I'm not asking you, do you know about God? Rather, do you have a personal relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ, His Son? Listen, you cannot know the Father apart from the Son. In fact, as Jesus says in John 14, verse 6, you can't even come to the Father except through Him. Eternal life, life that that abounds with joy for eternity in the presence of the resurrected Savior, beholding His glory, basking in the blessings that belong to those who are His. Listen, those things do not belong to someone simply because they were born into a Christian family. Those things do not come simply because you attend a church service. Those things will never be claimed by you simply because you drop money in the offering box as you leave. Listen, to eternal life, eternal life cannot be bought and it is not earned and it is not the right of anyone on their own merit. Rather, it is a free gift of God to those who humbly acknowledge their absolute need of His sacrifice on the cross for them as payment for their sins. And they place their faith in Christ and in Him alone. That is what it means to share in the life of Christ. So the question simply is, is that your testimony? You'll never be faced with a more important question than that one. And if you answered no to that question, let me just follow up with this. Why would you continue to reject the abundant and eternal life that Christ offers you? Why? Why would you remain in the dark when the light of life and the hope of glory is available to you? I hope at the conclusion of this service today, as you exit, you'll grab one of May or one of the other pastors that are here. If you're worshiping with us online, I hope you'll call the number that they're going to place on your screen so that you can leave a message and one of us will call you back about what it means to follow Christ and why and how you can come to faith in Him. To the rest of you, I don't want you to think that this prayer doesn't have any impact upon you because it absolutely does. You see, based upon what Jesus prays here, those whose testimony is that they do share in the life of Christ must ask themselves if they are faithfully seeking to penetrate the world around them with the gospel. In other words, does your family, 
Do your friends, do your neighbors, do, do, your, do your co-workers, do they know where your hope lies? Are you engaging in the mission that the Lord Jesus has sent us into this world to accomplish? Telling others about our faith and the hope that we have in Him. Brothers and sisters, the fact that we are commissioned people and go into all the world and make disciples is not an optional thing. It's not something that we can choose to do or not choose to do. In fact, based upon what Jesus prays here, we have to recognize that we are a sent people who have been armed with the greatest message ever told that brings about the greatest results and rewards ever experienced. Therefore, we must not insulate ourselves, nor must we isolate ourselves from the world around us. But neither must we become assimilated and conform to the ways of the world. Jesus prayed for his followers to be sanctified and to be set apart and to be holy. In other words, if we share in the life of Christ, then our lives should be distinct from the world around us because we are not of this world. We have been saved out of it. We have been transformed. And as a result, our joy is found in not fulfilling the desires of our sinful nature. That's what the world around us does. And that's the natural response for each and every one of us. But rather, our joy comes from living obediently to the Word of God. The lie of Satan, listen, the lie of Satan is that living for yourself and indulging in sin will bring you lasting pleasure. While living a holy life well, that'll only deprive you of being able to have fun. Let me tell you, the reality of sin is simply this. While, while it may bring about immediate pleasure, it will only ultimately deliver long-term pain and destruction. Holiness, on the other hand, while it may be more difficult in the short run, it will nevertheless bring about lasting joy and lasting pleasure. And that leads me to the last major question that I want to raise today and then we'll close. Are you living in unity with other believers? Being unified, I want you to know, does not mean unilateral conformity. It doesn't mean we all have to like the same music, the same colors, and the same football teams. You know what it does mean, though? Is that we find our community and our horizontal relationships are based upon the vertical relationship that we have with Jesus Christ and in nothing else. His glory is what unifies us and is a major factor in our witness to the world. And by our visible unity with all true believers, we proclaim the, to the world the truth that God sent his son to pay for their sins and give them eternal life. Maintaining that unity, let me say to you, will never be easy. Nevertheless, Jesus prays that the Father will keep us unified and protect us from division. And he also prays that the opposition of the world and the devil will not overpower us nor overwhelm us as we seek to maintain our witness as we go on mission for him. These are just a few of the important questions that our Lord's prayer raises and so though we have only scratched the surface of this text this morning, we have nevertheless come to the eve of Christ's crucifixion. Jesus, when we see that, we recognize Jesus is not backed into a corner. He's not cowering in fear. Rather, 
he is embracing the mission that lies in front of him, praying to his father, looking forward to the cross by which he would ultimately be glorified. And he's praying for his church. He's praying for you and for me that we would be protected, sanctified, commissioned, and unified in the hope of eternal life in his presence. My prayer is that our Lord's prayer will confront us and convict us and motivate us to embrace the internal and abundant life that we have in him. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God, and it is for the people of God. Let's pray this morning. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your mercy to us. We thank you for the fact sometimes we feel like we are just drinking from a fire hose when we come to your holy word, and yet we know that even then, your Holy Spirit has the ability and the power to transform us into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ, who has come to be the sin bearer, the one who bears the, the weight of our sin upon the cross and gives us eternal life through faith in him. My prayer is there's one here this morning who is yet to ever trust in you fully and to place their complete total faith in you that today would be that day that they would no longer search for other things in other directions, that they would no longer uh, be fearful of what the consequences may be, but that they would cling tightly to you and you alone because you alone are the one that can bring us eternal life. So I pray that you would do that today and then help those of us who claim you as our Lord and Savior to walk boldly into this world that you've given us and to be firm and, and bold carriers of the gospel to the world around us. This is my prayer. And I pray it in Christ's name.